Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Resuming Debate. Uh, I am very pleased uh, to uh, have Siddharth Kara joining us for the podcast today. Uh, Siddharth is a professor and author, best known for his uh, still relatively recent book, I think, Cobalt Red. Uh, It's a book some of you uh, may be familiar with already. Uh, If you haven't read it, I strongly, strongly recommend it. It is a uh, it is a brutal expose on artisanal cobalt mining in the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, or DRC. Uh, and it it brings home as well the uh, the complicity uh, and the responsibility that we have as as Western consumers as well as policymakers uh, for some of the human rights abuses that are happening in in the DRC. So, Siddhar, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Oh, my my pleasure. I'm I'm very happy you invited me to have this important conversation. Uh, great. So. Um, Let's start with just a couple preliminaries for those that are less familiar with the topic. Uh, your book is called Cobalt Red, and you you talk in the book a bit about the nature and the history of of uh, of this uh, this compound. What is cobalt? Why is it important? Uh, how do we how do we encounter it cobalt in our lives? And and just how important is the DRC in terms of the the global supply of cobalt? Yeah, let's, so let's set the groundwork here. Um, the important thing to understand is uh, you, me, everyone listening to us right now, none of us can function for 24 hours without cobalt. And the reason I say that is cobalt is an essential ingredient used in the rechargeable batteries that are found in almost every smartphone, tablet, laptop, e-scooter, e-bike, and crucially, electric vehicles sold in the world today. Cobalt is an essential ingredient because it allows the batteries to hold maximum amount of energy without catching on fire. Uh, And that means you don't have to plug in your phone as often or your electric vehicle will drive longer before you have to recharge. So that's why cobalt is so crucial. Now, the problem is about three fourths of the world's supply of cobalt is mined in a very small patch of one of the poorest, most war-torn countries in the world, the Democratic Republic of Congo, as you mentioned, in the heart of Africa. It's, it's mined in appalling, violent, subhuman conditions that are also very destructive uh, to the environment in, in the Congo. So we are all participating in that violence every time we plug in our phones, every time we plug in our laptops, check social media, send an email, whatever it might be. And crucially, if we buy an electric vehicle, we're participating in that violence as well. Mm-hmm. We, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation, record this podcast today, or, or have, have made the contacts that we have. Uh, so I'm, I, and I'm going to get shortly to ask you uh, what can and should the individual consumer do, uh, as well as we'll talk about what, what policymakers should be doing about this, uh, this reality. Um, but a few other preliminary questions I want to I go through first. And thank you for that, that background. Your book focuses on uh, the present but it also puts the, the present situation of the DRC in the historical context. Uh, the DRC has, has had uh, vast mineral wealth uh, and, and it has remained vital in global supply chains, even as technology, uh, technology has changed going back to the, uh, to the, the rubber era. Uh, the Congolese people have never benefited from their own mineral wealth. They've always been victims of exploitation uh, going back to the, uh, the criminal terror of, of Leopold II. Could you share a little bit of that historical context with um, with listeners and, and 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 why it matters? Why why does the history of uh, of uh, uh, Belgian colonization back in the nineteenth century still have echoes today? Yeah, this is really important for people to understand because what's happening in the Congo today is not some isolated ad hoc incident. It's simply the latest chapter in a long history of pillage and plunder by foreign powers in the heart of Africa. And as you mentioned, this goes back. Uh, a couple of centuries, um, the Congo is both blessed and cursed with an, an abundance of resources uh, from gold to diamonds to rubber to uh, nickel, lithium, and cobalt. Um, and those resources have attracted plunderers, imperialists, and treasure seekers uh, since the discovery um, of the heart of Africa 
in the late 19th century. And so that began with King Leopold. Um, he got his hands on the Congo as a personal colony um, in 1885, the same year that the internal combustion engine vehicle was invented by Carl Benz. And initially that car had steel clad wooden wheels that fell apart when you tried to go very fast. Um, then three years later, a Scotsman named Dunlop invented a rubber tire. And it just so happened that Leopold's Congo was sitting on one of the largest rubber tree rainforests in the world. And so he deployed this mercenary army of terrorists to enslave and torture the native population to extract rubber from the forest uh, and send it up to markets in Europe. And he walked away with an enormous pirated fortune as a result of this. Now, here we are um, uh, a few generations later in the uh, era and dawn of a second automobile revolution, this time the transition from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles. And as we just mentioned, most of those batteries require cobalt, actually large amounts of cobalt, up to 10 kilograms of refined cobalt per battery. Um, and more, there's more cobalt in the dirt of the Congo than the rest of the planet combined. Uh, so once again, the Congo is being subjected to this enormous external influence of piracy and pillage for this invaluable resource that the world needs for this second automobile revolution. And so that's why I say it's, it's the latest chapter in that heart of darkness, that Congo horror that goes back generations. And the people of the Congo have just been subjected to um, one wave of, of pillage and suffering after another. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think that's quite a stark uh, comparison. How, uh, uh, in a in a sort of technological sense, uh, cobalt, uh, the DRC has had the the right resource at the right time, but in terms of the the impact on the people, it has been the the wrong resource at the wrong time because it's 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 it, it, instead of leading to um, wealth and prosperity for the people, it's led to to domination exploitation. But but why has that been the case? Sort of post-independence, because you, you know the, the 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 nature of the of the prior colonization is is very explicit and very clear. You have a uh, a foreign ruler who is who is dominating aspects of life and and setting quotas and and making demands and enforcing those uh, those with with force. Uh, now it's it's more um, it's more complicated. It's more nuanced, I guess. So so what 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 are the factors since independence that have prevented the people of Congo from uh, seizing their own destiny and controlling their own and benefiting from their own resources? Yeah, I mean, there are very challenging legacies of the colonial period that the Congo is still tussling with. Um, so we talked about Leopold. Uh, we all know that inspired Conrad's Heart of Darkness, and it's one of the most um, appalling genocidal uh, um, incidents of exploitation in, in history, certainly. Um, in the dawn of the 20th century. Um, it incidentally also inspired the first great human rights movement of the 20th century. So every evil does have its champion that comes to slay the dragon. And, and that will happen today as well, but we'll come to that. Yeah. Um, that human rights movement successfully took uh, the Congo out of Leopold's hands. He was forced to sell the colony um, to the Belgian state in 1908. And so then the Belgian state ran the Congo as a colony from 1908 until independence in 1960. Now, to answer your question, Congo achieved independence in 1960. At that time, about 80% of the country's revenue came from the mining sector. The Belgians had just prospected these enormous mineral riches in the area called Katanga, which is where all the cobalt is. It just prospected that at that transition from Leopold to Belgium. Uh, to the state and, and then set up mining companies to exploit these mineral reserves, again, in systems of forced labor. So we get to independence in 1960. The people of the Congo vote in the democratic process to elect their first uh, head of state, a man named Patrice Lumumba, and they elected him because he promised an anti-colonial vision. He said, wait, since Europeans first set foot in the heart of Africa, our resources have gone to their benefit and not our people. And I want the, the riches of the Congo to, to benefit Congolese people. And Belgium in particular had no interest in that story. And 11 days after independence, they sent in armed forces and took control of the mining province. So the Congo was crippled uh, 11 days after independence. And to compress a very sordid story, um, uh, the neo-colonial powers, Belgium in particular, conspired to assassinate Lumumba 
Um, and they replaced him with a bloody dictator, Joseph Mobutu, who would play ball, who would keep the minerals flowing towards the West. This was also the time of the Cold War, and Mobutu promised to keep communists out of, out of Africa. And so he had support for decades, but ran the country into the ground because he was a corrupt kleptocrat, siphoning money, um, becoming one of the wealthiest people in the world in the 1980s. But he drove the country into the ground. Then there was a violent coup towards the end of his regime. Uh, that leader was then assassinated. Another leader took his place. And so you can see sort of what the post-independent story of Congo has been. They never had a chance to stand on their own two feet. It's been one mess after another, one explosion of violence after another. And as a consequence, there's poor governance and the country has not done an adequate job at taking these resources and allocating the benefit of those resources to its own people. Hmm. So there's a story of, of um, continuing foreign interference as well yes. as corruption uh, that have... Um, that have kind of played out to to prevent um, to prevent a, a kind of assertion of of a, of a of an economic system in which uh, people could could work and realize the benefit of their own uh, their own labor. That's right. When I talk to people in Congo, you know, and I've been many times. I've spent months on the ground, and I, I talk to very thoughtful Congolese people and say, you know, what? Um, why won't the country elect? Uh, a leader who will uh, support uh, the Congolese people first. Uh, now, mind you, they've had no peaceful transfer of power from independence in 1960 until the year 2019, but setting that to the side. Um, and the response that comes back is, well, we tried that. We tried that at independence with Lumumba and look what happened. The, the, the powers outside the would happen to any leader who put Congolese people first. So no one dares, you know, no one dares run on that platform. Uh, and so, yes, that foreign interference, violent interference, in fact, um, has played an important role in the post-colonial story of the Congo. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in fairness to that point, I mean, uh, and, and for, for a younger person like me, I think you sometimes forget how, how recent uh, decolonization the decolonization process has been in, in africa and 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 i mean one one could argue that in certain respects it's still it's still ongoing um but the um you know the the west has changed in terms of its attitudes toward and, and it's and it's it's willingness to interfere in the in, in these kinds of ways since that period surely right i mean is it um is it it doesn't seem like it's quite the case to say, well, that, that happened at independence, so the same thing would happen today. Well, I think you, you make two important points. I mean, the first is independence, this, this was not so long ago. I mean, if you think of all the fits and starts, um, Western countries, uh, the United States, Canada went through during their decolonial period. I mean, the United States, for instance, had a bloody explosion of violence during the Civil War. Yeah. Uh, and that was uh, 80, 90 years after independence. So, you know, we're only 80 years after Congolese independence. Um, and when you layer in all of the the, the uh, factors of that um, very invasive foreign influence, I mean, you can see how it's challenging for um, poor war-torn African countries that were sort of carved up willy-nilly by European border makers, um, how it's been so challenging for them. Now, that said, What's happening now is China's taking its turn right. at pillaging Africa. Um, you're right. I think if the story were repeated today, things would be done in a more decent, humane, transparent manner. I'm not saying perfectly. Yeah. Um, you know, Western governments by no hands have completely clean hands when it comes to the global south. Um, but there's certainly a preferred choice to the way China's doing things in Africa right now. And that's a mm -hmm. big part of the problem because they pay no heed to the human rights of the Congolese people. They control a lot of the mining operations on the ground, state-run Chinese mining companies, and they pay no heed to the human rights of Congolese people. They pay no heed to environmental sustainability of their mining operations. They dump toxic effluents and substances all over the countryside. Um, and and so that's that's the problem Africa and Congo in particular are taking are, are facing today, which is that China's taking its turn at the pillage. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, and I want to come back to, to China, um, but uh, I think now is probably a good time to ask you to really drill in specifically to the nature of the human rights abuses. Uh, and and you, you, your book um, tells personal stories. It, it talks about uh, children, pregnant women, uh, tunnel collapse, all, all, all sorts of different things. But just, you know, maybe the best way to do it is if, if you can kind of walk us through a couple stories or the, the life of a typical artisanal miner. What are they doing? What does it look like? What, what, what are the impacts of this on them? Yeah, so, you know, the point of Cobalt Red, uh, and it's the first book to do this, is to bring the truth from the ground out into the world. Um, because that truth has been shrouded for an array of reasons, not the least of which is the marketing teams at big tech and EV companies don't want us to know the truth. They want us to just keep buying stuff without knowing the truth. And that truth is a very bleak and grim reality for the people in the Congo. So what's exactly happening on the ground in the DRC right now as we're talking every day so that we can plug in? Um, you have hundreds of thousands of people, some of the poorest people in the world, including tens of thousands of children, scrounging at the ground with their bare hands, with shovels, with stretches of rebar, hacking at the earth to fill up a sack of cobalt for the day. And many of them work in family units, mother, father, and children. Children are not in school. They're working in the pits and trenches with their parents because at the end of the day, they'll all earn about a dollar or two and that's enough to eat and survive until the next day. Uh, how do they earn that dollar or two? Well, they clamber into pits and trenches and tunnels. And with their bare hand, cobalt is toxic to touch, toxic to breathe. So with their bare hands, they dig cobalt and rock and dirt and mud out of the ground. They fill it into a sack. They take it over to a putrid rinsing pool to separate the dirt and valueless stones from the cobalt bearing ore. And then they fill those cobalt stones into another sack that they sell to mostly Chinese middlemen for a few dollars. Uh, and those Chinese middlemen then sell it to formal mining companies. And so that's how a sack of cobalt that's mined by children with their bare hands and mother and father with a little pickaxe ends up in the formal supply chain and then is sent up the chain into our rechargeable gadgets and cars. They suffer shattered legs, shattered spines, cancers, birth defects, respiratory ailments, acute dermatitis. There's a whole public health catastrophe taking place because it is such a toxic and hazardous endeavor. And the worst thing that happens, the worst thing that happens is um, with tunnels. The way people are paid is grade which means purity purity of the of the cobalt in the stone times kilograms so it's a piece rate wage system and if you want to earn instead of one or two dollars maybe three or four dollars in the day you dig a little deeper where there's a higher grade of cobalt ore and so there's probably 15,000 or so tunnels that have been dug by hand 30 40 50 meters deep they have no supports, ventilation shafts, rock bolts. People spend 24 hours at a time crouched in darkness, unable to sit upright, hacking at the wall at a little vein of heterogenite, which is the ore that has cobalt in it, to fill a sack and send it up. Every day, every week, every month, these tunnels collapse. And everyone who's down there is buried alive. And so the most painful encounters I've had with a mother or a father sitting just across from me, pounding their chest in torment, rec recalling the day they found out that their child had been buried alive in a tunnel collapse. And they say, for what? You know, for what? For a few dollars? That's our life? You know, we measure our lives in broken bones for cobalt, in lost children for cobalt, so that people outside of our, uh, uh, outside of the Congo can, can plug in their phones and their cars? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. It, it's, an, it's a complete... Um, it's a complete hypocritical injustice that this is the global economic order that is forced upon them. And, and that's the truth that stakeholders at the top of the chain don't want us to know. That's the truth that policymakers who are pushing EV mandates don't want us to know. But that's the truth that emerges when you spend time on the ground in the Congo talking to people. They reveal this horror they're experiencing just so we can pursue environmental climate sustainability goals, and uh, live our rechargeable gadget-driven lifestyle.
Wow. I, um, I found reading your book heartbreaking. Um, and I, I find even talking about it um, with you again, recalling the, the stories you share uh, heartbreaking. And um, always in these moments, I want to quote uh, William Wilberforce, who said, um, you may choose to look away, but you may never again say you didn't know. And uh, that's that's the point our listeners are at. That That's the point I was at when I read your book. And uh, obviously that you were at when you when you began these conversations that. Uh, um, so so me, I think maybe the next place to go logically from that is uh, you talked about phones and electric vehicles and, and, and these sorts of things. Um, like I, I read your book a few months ago. I, I still use a phone. Um, but I, but, but I, like what, what can consumers do who, who are maybe feeling some level of, of pain and guilt and, and want to do what's right, uh, knowing this information, uh, like, do, do they have any, I mean, other than other than not using the technology, do they have do they have any options? Yeah, listen, it's it, it, we we have choices we can make right now, right now. You and I that can help. Uh, obviously, you and I and people listening to us can't go to the Congo and solve the problems on the ground. Nor, nor should we have to. It, we didn't make this mess. I think the feeling we should have is an indignation that we've been made unwitting participants in this mm -hmm. enormous violation of the human rights of the people in the Congo and the obliteration of their environment. And that's not talked about enough. Millions of trees have been clear cut to make way for big mining operations. The entire countryside has been contaminated and polluted. I've shared some pictures on social media, uh, one of which is a couple of children sitting in the dirt covered in a mustard colored powder that is the dried sulfur dioxide from the nearby chemical processing facility of a Chinese mining company. And we, are, we have been forced to participate in that through no fault of our own by tech companies and EV companies that have refused to get on the ground and accept responsibility for the conditions at the bottom of their supply chains. No one put a gun to, to the head of these companies and said, you have to use cobalt and you have to mine it in miserable conditions. They found that it, it maximizes energy density in the batteries. It's all in the Congo. And then they left the scramble to, to run riot without saying, wait a minute, we've created this chain of events that is leading to all this violence. We need to make sure we're on the ground um, protecting the dignity and human rights and environment of the people in Africa because they're worth the same as us. And the fact that they haven't done it means they don't think those people are worth the same as us. And that's the kernel of truth that comes out of all this. It's the ugly truth that comes out of all this. So what can you and I do? Number one, we have to continue spreading awareness. Listen to the voices of the Congolese people. They're speaking in the pages of Cobalt Red. Other journalists are going, other researchers are going. They're bringing those voices, that ground truth out into the world, listen to it, and spread it because that's the first step to achieving any sustained human rights change. It always works the same way. People cannot address a horror they don't know exists. So spreading awareness is step one. And then that inevitably activates champions, a community of conscience, some moral leaders who will say this injustice cannot stand and I will drag the rest of humanity forward with my force of will and my moral rigor until this injustice is set right. And that's exactly how the first Congo horror was resolved. Those champions emerged and dragged all of humanity forward, starting with awareness of the ground truth. So that's the first thing we can do. The second thing is, no one is saying we should stop using our smartphones. We can't, it's an impossibility, the way our lifestyles work. But what we can do is think, each year I'm marketed this idea by these companies, I need to upgrade. Upgrade my phone, upgrade my gadget, upgrade my whatever it is, because it, the, the camera's a little better or the processor's a little faster or the battery lasts a little longer, thanks to Cobalt, by the way. Do we really need to do that? Because every time we buy another gadget, we're creating more demand-side forces that are creating this scramble, this pressure, this fever to get Cobalt out of the ground in the Congo. So maybe we think about our consumption habits a little bit and not participate more than necessary in this violence 
until these champions emerge and compel these companies to do what they should have done at the beginning, which is get on the ground and make sure children are in school, people are given protective equipment and a decent wage, and the entire countryside isn't obliterated for COBOL. Yeah, thank you. That's, um, that's very good because it's very practical, right? Uh, don't, um, don't, don't upgrade your phone uh, as, as a way of communicating, uh, you know, as a way of reducing your complicity, but also as a way of, of communicating. And maybe if, um, maybe that's, you know, in, in parallel with advocacy, if more, uh, more consumers were, were signaling to companies that their decisions around, uh, phone upgrades were impacted by, uh, concerns about, about, uh, what's happening with cobalt, uh, this would um, this would would uh, push companies to to do better in this regard. So we've we've talked about sort of the consumer around the phone. Let's talk about the electrical vehicle piece. What what would your message be um, if someone says to you, you know, man, what you're what you're saying is important, but you know, th those in the green movement, right? So if if somebody says to you, and maybe you've had these conversations, that they think uh, climate change is a, is an existential crisis for the world and um, and, and there are trade-offs in that. So if the trade-off means, um, means more, more suffering, um, but, but the world is going to survive again, that's, I'm not, I'm not articulating my own view. Right. But, but there are, there are those that, 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 that who, who see the, the perceive the starkness of the climate change issue, but might, might see it this way. What, what would your message be to them about, about how, in spite of that, uh, there, something still needs to change around the, the EV uh, use. Yeah, so let's let's be very clear on this because this is important. The first thing I'd say is you cannot do good for class of violating the rights of another class, ever. It, it's a hypocrisy. It's unjustifiable, and that's not how you pursue positive change. Um. Now let's grant for a minute, let's grant for the sake of argument that climate change is an existential crisis and that we must achieve these climate sustainability goals that have emerged from the Paris Agreement. Let's just, let's accept that at face value for the sake of argument. Okay, fine. The transition from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles is therefore an integral part of achieving those climate sustainability goals. The way it's being done now is an utter hypocrisy. The reason I say that is we're trying to save our environment and pass on a greener planet to our children by destroying their environment and forfeiting the lives of their children. And you cannot save the planet in pieces. You cannot save our part by destroying theirs. You cannot preserve our future by destroying theirs. That, that invalidates the entire movement when it is built upon an essential violation of the rights of a class of people in a part of the world and their surrounding environment. Because then what you're saying is, just like 300 years ago when we enslaved all those Africans and didn't think twice, we can do the same thing today. We can forfeit their lives. We can destroy their environment. We don't have to think twice because we have our needs. So that's a colonial mindset. That's a slave trade mindset. And so I would, I would argue to the, to the green advocate, fine, I accept at face value everything you're saying as an aspiration, but you can't pursue it with a colonial slave trading destructive mindset for people in Africa. That invalidates everything you're trying to do and makes it uh, built on a foundation of hypocrisy. The people in Africa cannot be the expense account for our green future. I suppose what they would say back is, um, it, is that the survival of the planet um, is, is necessary for everyone. It's, it's not just a question of uh, you know, and, and and this is rooted in a kind of moral ends justify the means thinking, which you've you've rejected, and which I, I agree with you in rejecting. Uh, but they they might say that okay, the if there if there's no planet, then that doesn't that doesn't help anyone anyone anywhere. And and so cu curious for your response to that, but then also just in practice, it seems to me that there is a bit of a temptation in the ESG movement. 
to put the E ahead of the S and the G, uh, and um, and to and to push forward policies that that are that are that are E only, not not ESG. Um, do you do you perceive that temptation as well? Look, nothing nothing about pursuing all these sustainability goals prevents anyone from building a few schools in Congo. Right. From paying people a decent wage, from giving people a hard hat and some gloves. Not, nothing is, none right. of those activities um, are prevented um, by pursuing climate sustainability goals. You just have to care enough about them to want to do it. It's actually the easiest part of the entire operation. It's very complicated to design smartphones and electric vehicles, to manufacture them, to distribute them, to achieve climate sustainability goals by carbon offsets and all of this complicated thing, the, these complicated things that have been done and will continue to be done. Um, though that's the hard part. Um, paying mother and father $10 a day instead of $2 so that they have food to eat and can keep children in school, that's the easy part. Um, giving them some gloves, which is you have to buy the gloves and put them in a box and ship them to Africa, hand them to an NGO to then distribute. That's it. So giving them some gloves so they're not touching toxic things. Ensuring that mining companies contain the toxic effluence of processing facilities as they do in Canada, as they do in America, as they do in Western Europe. Ensuring that they do the same thing in Africa. That's the easy part. So all of this you can pursue. It doesn't prevent you from just the basic, from ensuring the basic dignity of work and sustainability of mining in Africa, unless, unless your starting point is they count less. And if that's your starting point, then you don't do any of these things and you end up where we are today, which is, well, they have to pay the price so that we can save the planet. Yeah, I think that's that's very compelling and uh, and important. Um, we've talked a bit about the companies, right? You know, the companies that are doing this. Um, let's talk a bit more about who these companies are, where are they based, um, and because uh, you, you you talked a bit about about uh, Chinese companies in particular. And my sense is that a lot a lot of a lot of this is material mined in Congo through Chinese companies that ends up ends up here, uh, which which creates some degree of greater complexity around pushing companies or holding them accountable. But but who are these players and how can we uh, engage them? Yeah, one of the one of the com complicating factors in all this is um, most of the supply chain is controlled by China and China caught the Western West flat footed in this regard. Um, they locked down, they saw 15 plus 20 years ago that the future was rechargeable batteries. And what do those batteries need? They figured that out and then they went and locked down the supply of those things, a lot of which comes out of Africa. Um, and cobalt, of course, as we've said, is almost entirely from DR Congo. Uh, so about 70 plus percent of the mining production in Congo is run by state-run Chinese mining companies. Um, about 80% of the world's supply of refined cobalt last year was produced by Chinese refineries. And about half the world's rechargeable batteries, from phones to cards, were produced by Chinese battery companies. Those batteries then get sold to um, tech companies and car companies to, to put into their devices and cars. But China controls the, the entire supply chain the majority of the supply chain, from the dirt in Africa to the point of a battery. And right now, um, what, what consumer-facing tech and EV companies say is, well, China, you know, the, the Chinese government tells me they're um, uh, adhering to human rights norms in Africa, so that's good enough for me. And the Chinese government is telling me they, they make sure mining is done sustainably, so that's good enough for me. Now, since when do we accept at face value statements of the Chinese government that they're protecting human rights of their own people, let alone people in Africa. That's the problem, that consumer-facing tech and EV companies in the West just accepted face value, rather than get on the ground themselves to ensure, because ultimately all of this ends up in their products. That's the point of the chain. 
That's the point of the chain. It all ends up in their products. So they should be on the ground making sure, now hold on, China said to me that there's no child labor. Let me, oh, wait a minute. I see there's 10,000 children working, um, digging for cobalt. Um, I need to address that and work with my Chinese partners to address that. Um, the fact that they haven't done it yet means they don't think those people are worth it. So we come back to that enduring theme here. Uh, and that's where consumer activists, civil society, um, and policymakers uh, have to compel these companies to say, no, it's not simply good enough to wash your hands of this and rely on the assurances of the Chinese government that they're doing everything in this with the same standards that we would if we were on the ground. Um, we need to make sure our companies are on the ground uh, monitoring the bottom of their supply chains because ultimately the supply chain ends in their products. Right. So, so um even even aside from the human rights issues it seems to me what you're what you're describing is an incredible area of of dangerous strategic vulnerability for the west that we're uh, already very reliant on uh rechargeable batteries perhaps moving towards greater reliance uh, and the supply the supply chain is such that um that if if there is uh uh escalating strategic conflict some kind of shock or disruption uh that that we are um that, that we are are uh, relying on a uh what has effectively become a, co a cold war adversary uh for um for access to these materials do you have thoughts on the strategic uh dynamics at play here yeah this is i mean this is why i said the west was caught flat-footed because um there are huge economic uh dependencies on china because they locked down this supply chain. And uh, you, could, you could foresee a scenario in which um, tensions escalate and China just turns off the tap. Uh, now they'd be spy, you know, chopping off their nose to spite their face because they make a lot of money selling all these batteries to us. But if the strategic decision was made of short-term pain for some longer-term greater pain on the West, they could just shut, shut off the tap and there's really no other place for the West to go um, to secure an adequate supply of component metals and batteries outside of China. And you see Western countries scrambling to figure this out, um, trying to create alternate battery metal supply chains, uh, supply lines, finding different battery chemistries where there are elements that they can access and lock down. All of that is going to take quite a bit of time. It uh, does nothing to alleviate the suffering taking place every, every day in the Congo right now. Um, but it is a geo, it is a strategic vulnerability that the West faces because they were caught flat footed while China locked down these battery component metal supply chains very uh, strategically and very shrewdly. So uh, it seems that there is a compelling strategic and moral interest in the West trying to establish a different kind of relationship with the DRC, uh, one that um, one that does emphasize engagement and our our uh, involvement in the mining sector, our purchasing directly of resources, uh, and trying to do structure those relationships in ways that 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 benefit people that are currently um, that are currently being exploited. Uh, you said the West is sort of scrambling to find um, find alternatives. I mean, what what is the nature of those Western efforts to um, to engage the DRC government and, and to um, uh, change the routes of these supply chains? And, and is, is human rights in a part of that conversation or is there a risk that the strategic uh, factors will, will kind of exclude the human rights dimensions? Well, you know, the West does, uh, has made efforts in Congo um, and a few other African countries that have these important resources to advance sort of these twin twin facets of um, uh, human rights standards, as well as the strategic interests of, of uh, uh, getting access to these component metals, battery component metals. Um, in Congo, you know, right now they just had elections. The president, uh, uh, Felix Tshisekedi, won his second term. Um, elections in the Congo, no one ever really knows um, uh, what the what the tally was, but, you know, Shishiketi did have support of the uh, U.S. government 
Um, uh, he has made some efforts to push back on sort of Chinese exploitation in the mining provinces to improve transparency, um, to try to make contracts more advantageous um, for the country and uh, for, for the Congo. Uh, and he signed a memorandum of understanding with the Biden administration um, relating to um, um, mineral supply chains. The problem is there's no U.S. mining company in the Congo. There's only a couple of Western mining companies in the Congo. Um, uh, there's one or two Canadian ones, although I think they're majority owned by Chinese um, mining companies now. Um, so the West just has doesn't have much presence on the ground in the heart of Africa. Um, which makes it very difficult to have influence on the conditions under which um, these elements are mined. Ultimately, you know, we can say all the right things, um, but if we're not on the ground to activate those principles and realize those principles, as well as solve the strategic vulnerabilities, there's, there's only so much that can be done uh, from a distance. Right. So I think what, like, one of the political challenges that this maybe points to is that uh, I think sometimes when there's pressure around a human rights issue, the response of companies when they see reputational risk is just to stand as far away from the the point of abuse as possible to say, okay, people are upset about what's happening in Congo. We're going to, you know, we're not there. We're not involved. Um, if anything, we're, we're just, we'll be at the very, uh, tip of the tail of the of the supply chain, but the effect of that is is worse conditions, and we're we're still paying for it. What we actually need is more engagement, more presence, and potentially that means presence in situations that are a little bit ambiguous, right? It, you know, providing yes. safety, yeah. providing safety equipment uh, that improves the situation, but still is not quite at Western Western standards. So, yes. so it, yeah, sorry, curious for your yeah, response no, to yeah. that tech and EV companies in the West are washing their hands of it. They're not accepting responsibility um, for what's happening on the ground at the bottom of their supply chains. Or they point their finger downstream, you know, to a mining company. Mining company points its finger downstream and everyone's pointing their finger downstream until the last finger is pointed at a child in the Congo, caked in toxic filth in the trench, and no one's accepting responsibility for that child. And if we in the West are supposed to put forward into the world a different model of doing business and norms of human rights um, uh, that are that cannot be derogated because of who you are or where you are, gender, race, whatever. These are just universal norms. If that's the model we're putting out into the world, then we have to walk the walk. And that means rolling up our sleeves and getting on the ground. And it's not that it, I'm not saying get on the ground in some disconnected place where we have no interests. We can't function without what's in their ground. So we have an interest, uh, practically, morally, strategically. We have an interest. We should be on the ground. And maybe we can't achieve the perfect solution, but perfection shouldn't be the enemy of some progress. Mm -hmm. We can make progress. We can reduce harm. We can put some more children in school. We can reduce some amount of toxic exposure. We can reduce some amount of contamination of the environment. We can go and replant some of the millions of trees that have been chopped down. All of these things that are not that hard. They may not solve the problem overnight, but they will reduce a lot of harm, repair a lot of harm, and show the world, particularly the African world, which is, you see, veering more and more eastward yeah. and rejecting the West, we have to go on the ground and say, no, listen, we are allies and stewards of your well-being as well as our own. We have universal norms. We're going to walk that walk and not just talk about it when it's expedient. Uh, but we're not doing that. And it has to start with the companies that, of course, rely on these metals and are swimming in profits as a consequence of these metals, but not investing in the communities they rely on. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the West sort of articulating uh, its position as standing for universal norms, I mean, is is that colonial history that we talked about earlier um, a, a major impediment to that? Because it, it seems that to me that uh, China is the uh, contemporary colonial uh, power in, in Africa that's doing, um, you know, the, the most damage. I mean, Russia's doing a lot of damage too. Um, but, but 
the the the, the, the sort of rhetorical association with colonialism is Western uh, uh, colonialism, and uh, and and the Chinese state still uses some of this like global South solidarity language, uh, even though it is it is using many of the same techniques that were used by Western powers in the past. So, so how can we, how can we, we sort of, um, um, how, how can we, we, we sort of show that, no, 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 now, now we're serious about universal norms. We're not, we're, we're actually serious about them now. And, and, uh, and China's not. Well, what better way to show it by just doing it, right. you know, you, you, and you do it in a way that isn't, um, a quid pro quo. You do it in a way that isn't always just in your interest and benefit. You do it because it's right. And people are smart. Okay. People in a, you know, they are smart. They see what's happening around them. People in the Congo who've never gone to a day of school can still see clearly what China is doing to their country. They've been shown no alternative model, no alternative way to run this economy, this battery metal economy. Um, uh, and so this is the only game in town. And yes, China does play that card of, you know, we're here, you see, we've given these loans, we're, we're building roads and ports and things, um, doing the, all the things the West never did. They colonized and enslaved you for centuries and we're your friend. Um, and they're winning allies that way uh, in important parts of the world. Um, and so is Russia for that matter. Um, but you, you, can't, you can't repair the past without just getting down um, rolling up your hands, your sleeves, getting your hands dirty, and repairing the past. And that means showing that there's another way to do things, that it's not always about expediency and self-interest. It's because it's right. And that is the enduring difference between how we should be doing business in the global south and how China is doing it right now. It's very much about um, quid pro quo and self-interest for China. Um, and we have to show that there's a different and better model, a more enduring model, regardless of our ugly history on the continent. And it is a very ugly history, but regardless of that, let us be the generation that starts repairing that and doing what's right because it's right, um, regardless of whether it's beneficial to us on that day or not. Yeah, thank, thank you for that. And um, one thing that strikes me as a Canadian as well is, um, Yes, you're right. We, you know, all of the West has to has to lean in and get to get to work uh, and and show actually show not just tell but show a, a, a different way of engaging. Uh, but but Canada does not have the same historical baggage uh, that our our European partners do uh, in terms of of Africa. So it it um, it speaks maybe to to a particular value in in us engaging as part of this process. And maybe that 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 leads me to to um, okay. Kind of a maybe it's a dangerous question for me, me to ask you as a politician on on air, but 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 what should I do about this as an elected member of parliament uh, uh, and 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 my colleagues as well uh, in in Canada's parliament? Uh, what are the specific concrete things we can do to uh, to make life better for uh, for that child uh, that is uh, that is required to work under under terrible conditions? Yeah, I think look, I think there's a range of things policymakers can do, um, from small steps to you know to the moonshot. The, the, you know the moonshot the 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 bold the bold leadership move would be to say to these consumer facing tech and EV companies um, you can't sell your things here until we receive independent third party assurances and validation that the components of that phone or car or whatever it is um, that none of them are produced uh, in a way that violates the basic rights, dignity, or environmental sustainability at the bottom of the chain. You know, that's that's the moonshot bold move to say, this is the line in the sand I'm drawing. As a leader, as a policymaker in my country, we are done participating in this, okay? We're done. And I don't want your word for it because of course you're gonna tell me it's okay. Of course you're gonna tell me all the good things you're doing and that your supply chain is clean. I need an independent voice. And so you set up some, um, some body, some institution, some coalition, some advocacy group that is that independent voice that gets on the ground. And, and then when they see, no, 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 there's a big mess here. Phase two is then, uh, how do we work together to resolve these issues, to make sure that the people in Canada, every time they plug in their phone are not being forced uh, into this bargain of forfeiting African lives. Um, uh, so that's, 
that's a that's one bold policy move. But there's smaller steps that could be taken. You know, the first step is just say, okay, let's get some groundwork here as Canadians, as policymakers. We need to do an independent assessment of this. We're going to get some group of academics here in Canada, professors and and some subject matter experts, get them on the ground, let them document what's happening independently. And then we have our data set that's independent of industry, independent of any vested interest. We have our information that tells us this is what's happening. Um, why it's happening, who's responsible, and what can we do to address some of these things. Perhaps there's a there's some portion, one-tenth of one percent of every phone and EV sold in Canada goes into a fund that is building schools, expanding sanitation, expanding electrification, um, providing PPE for workers, you know, all these things where we're trying to get the value that's absorbed and funneled to the top of the chain, this enormous monumental amount of profit, getting some fractional fragment of that, that wouldn't even go be noticed at the top, but can transform lives and reduce harm at the bottom and get, get it back down on the bottom where it belongs, investing in these communities that we rely on. So there's, there's various things, I think from small steps, getting, uh, getting your own independent data set on what's happening, um, to the bold move of just saying, look, we're done. We're done participating in this pillage and violence until we have independent assurances um, that these supply chains are clean. And we'll work with you on that. We'll support you on that. We'll help fund these efforts. Um, uh, but we're not going to just sit here and continue participating. And this is my job as a policymaker is to push these things forward, um, whether they're small, medium or large steps. But all of it is progress. Thank you for for those suggestions and uh, and a lot to think about uh, in terms of the the precise mechanics of of, of how we can do that and um, you know, I, I do think this is a place for strength and collaboration among Western Western countries as well. I'm part of a, a network, the Interparliamentary Alliance uh, on China, that is that is looking at China's influence in the world. I think some of these some of these legislative networks. Um, I think the the um, you know the the American government's inclination to have more collaboration among democracies is is going to be important here. Um, you know the, the strategic issues, but also the moral issues uh, align. So so thank you for those suggestions. Um, just as maybe a, a final question. Um, in Congo, there are there are multiple intersecting situations of conflict. Uh, there are the issues around uh, resource extraction. Um, there's also kind of the there's the the history of of kind of the the Rwanda genocide, its impact on the DRC, uh, and uh, concerns about um, you know general instability in Eastern Congo, uh, Rwandan involvement, uh, and um, you know some of these other issues. To what extent do those things intersect with the? Uh, excuse me. Uh, to what extent do these issues intersect with the um, with the um the the mining issues uh and uh are are these other regional countries involved in in some way and and um how how are these potential conflicts kind of impacting each other yeah the, you know the 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 impact of rwanda and the eastern congo um going back to the genocide has been um just a, a real bleak aspect of the congolese story post independence i mean um, some of your listeners may not be old enough to remember, but you and I are that explosion of violence in Rwanda in 1994 um, uh, that just spilled into the Eastern Congo, you know, across across the Great Lakes into Eastern Congo. And that part of the country has been a militia run, destabilized, violent um, uh, corner of the world ever since um, uh, it is. And it is home to a lot of other important um, elements that are used in, in electronic devices, coal, tan, tin, tungsten. Uh, a lot of it is mined in Eastern Congo. It's all sort of laundered through Rwanda and Burundi out of formal supply chains. And militias um, uh, compel people through violence to dig those things out of the ground. Uh, uh, so it's another part of the story that led to the, you know, the conflict mineral story and the Dodd-Frank legislation that was meant to address some of the uh, conflict mineral story coming out of uh, the Rwandan genocide. Uh, but that part of the Congo remains very unstable. 
Um, a lot of people uh, flee those provinces to other parts of the Congo. Um, I met a lot of people in the mining provinces. So just geographically, the cobalt area is, is uh, about a thousand miles south um, of Eastern Congo where, where that Rwandan violence continues to destabilize. And Rwanda continues to be a destabilizing force in Eastern Congo, supporting militias like M23 for sure. Um, a lot of people flee. A lot of children are orphaned by that violence. I met the children who had been uh, trafficked uh, into the cobalt mining provinces from eastern Congo. So it all spills outward in these sort of cascading waves of more suffering, more violence, more exploitation. Um, and that's why it is so important to be a force for stability, democracy, um, and good in, in, in the heart of Africa and not just sit idly by while, while all these forces of violence and destabilization wreak havoc on the people um, in that part of the world uh, who happen to be standing on dirt that is filled with things that we need to conduct our daily lives. Yeah. So, so just part of the story then, just maybe another follow-up, um, part of the story with those sort of intersecting problems is... Um, is broader security issues, right? That um, that that um, the, the the central government uh, is in in Congo is is not in a position to uh, to impose anything resembling a uniform security reality in the country. Um, does does part of the solution have to be some resolution to that? Uh, and yet, um, you know, there there is there is the UN uh, mission, uh, which which maybe. It, you know, that doesn't necessarily have fully have the trust of, of people and is, is maybe winding down. Do, do you think um, do you think there is a, a solution on offer to the sort of deeper security issue, which which may underline a lot of these different problems at the same time? Yeah. Eastern Congo has to get fixed. I mean, it's been decades now and the Congolese government does not have the resources or the manpower to stabilize that part of the country, which is why the U.N. has had a force in there going back decades um, now local population has a very, um, as you said, that might finally be winding down the UN peacekeeping presence in Eastern Congo, which may lead to even more violence uh, and destabilization. So Eastern Congo needs, Congo in general, needs support from Western countries uh, to stabilize Eastern Congo. And that means also dealing with the influence of Rwanda in the region, because all that destabilization, all that violence ripples outward and, and creates more and more strain and strife on the population, um, leads to all this internal displacement, this distress migration. A lot of people are then swarming down into or fleeing to um, the cobalt mining provinces because you know the word is out, uh, if you can scrounge for a day, you get a dollar or two, um, and there's no, uh, there's no M23 militia or Rwandan forces that are going to chop your head off. Um, uh, but that creates even more pressure on the population there. Um, uh, it just leads to so much suffering because when you have this massive surplus of displaced people, suffering people who can't survive, their lives are worth nothing. You know, if, if a child get, gets injured or buried alive, there's another 10 on the way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's the tragedy here. And that's, that's the bottom of, of our of our rechargeable lifestyle. And so that's why it's so important in, for every reason, chief of, all, chief of all, the moral imperative. Um, if we need these people and their part of the world to function, then we are surely duty bound to some degree to assist in stabilizing and improving um, their, the world around them and their lifestyles. Siddhar, thank you so much for for coming on. You, you've you've shared in such a compelling way uh, the the situation uh, and our responsibility, um, but you've also offered some some very practical uh, things that uh, consumers can do, uh, that uh, that policymakers can do, uh, and um, and we should take those actions. But but in parallel, we should we should all seek to inform ourselves and raise greater awareness. Uh, so that means, uh, again, reading your book, Cobalt Red, uh, and uh, uh, folks can, of course, of course, share this conversation uh, with with their friends and family uh, to help uh, increase that awareness as well. Uh, Siddharth, thank you again. Anything you want to leave us with? Anything I missed or should have asked? Uh, I'll give I'll give the last word to you. 
Oh, this was a um, terrific conversation. I appreciate it. I appreciate the invitation, the opportunity to amplify this issue to your audience, uh, to the people in Canada. Um, and the last thing I'll say is the people in the Congo are screaming out um, and we just need to stop and take a beat, listen to their voices uh, and do what's right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, this is the Resuming Debate podcast. Uh, if you if you liked what you heard, uh, we, uh, we release episodes about every two weeks uh, on a lot of different issues, sometimes uh, domestic Canadian political issues, a lot of a lot of global issues as well. Uh, and uh, I'm I'm very pleased that we uh, we have a, such a good string of of uh, very reputable, respected, uh, thoughtful commentators coming on this spring. So uh, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, uh, and we'll be uh, back with another episode in 14 days. <laughs>